0: Hello and welcome to a Royal College of Psychiatrists podcast. My name is Howard Ryland. I am the Associate Editor for the College e-newsletter. I'm very pleased to have with us today, Dr Jed Boardman. Thank you very much for joining us. I'd like to start out by asking you what your role is as the lead for social inclusion for the college?
1: Yes, yeah, so the, the, the role I have started um, some years ago when I chaired a scoping group on social uh, inclusion uh, for the college. This emerged out of a previous group we'd done on, on employment and we felt we needed to broaden the scope um, of you know, the importance of employment and mental health problems into its links with broader uh, factors that exclude people from uh, be participating in society in general. So we developed um, m- my role as, uh, as lead for social exclusion and I've taken on anything that somehow comes under that rubric but, uh, but in reality over the last couple of years I've been concerned mainly with things like welfare reform and also with uh, matters to do with the employment of people uh, with mental health problems. And latterly I took on some work on personal health budgets uh, which seem to be
0: uh, fit into that uh, that rubric of my uh, position, thank you. Could you describe in a little bit more detail what exactly social exclusion is well.
1: Social exclusion is is a relatively new term and it sort of emerges, I suppose, from the social policy literature and um, it was probably developed as a term in Europe during the 1970s. I think the French used to refer to les exclus, there were people who somehow would slip through the sort of social security net and somehow therefore become administratively excluded by the state. And if you see it like that, then what exclusion is is really, I, I think, in many people's minds, to do with is essentially poverty. And of course, in this country, we've had a, a sort of long tradition of looking at poverty and deprivation uh, in uh, in the population. You know, at least stretching back to the 19th century. But what perhaps social exclusion does is looks at um, factors other than poverty that exclude people from participating in uh, in society uh, because I think that's the essential nub of the matter it's it's exclusion you're excluded from uh, participation but that exclusion is essentially to do with constraint not choice in 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 this matter so you could be excluded by the fact that you you know you have no um, easy um, uh, access to material resources you're poor it's poverty that might do that or you might be excluded because of lacking a job or lacking uh, a decent uh, education but you also might be excluded from sort of social networks as well or indeed of course from if you like civic participation participating in, in in the life of your community or in the if you like the broader politics of that community and I think all those factors are true for people with mental health problems. And to that, you may want to add, I think, people with mental health problems are, of course, excluded po- possibly from services, um, health services in, in, in particular is a good case for, and also from probably from enjoying the sort of same levels of health as many other members of the population. You know, exclusion from services is, is, is a matter for often seen in people with learning dis- disabilities, um, exclusion from good health is certainly seen with the uh, you know, the, the high uh, morbidity rates for people with, say, schizophrenia.
0: I know that you've done a lot of work around the recent welfare reforms, um, and in particular with uh, sickness benefit. Could you tell me a little bit about the current situation with these issues?
1: Yes, I mean, the uh, welfare reform, as it's called, or or sometimes I wonder what we're reforming for. We're certainly changing things. Uh, Welfare reform has been really a a matter that's been going on for over over 10 years now. I mean, the the, the previous Labour government had uh, three uh, uh, Welfare Reform Acts um, and the current government brought in their own uh, welfare reform act last year, and it came into action on April the first this year. And I think what we've seen here is really, uh, at one level, you, it's it's been an attempt to uh, face the fact that uh, people on what were called incapacity benefits, uh, sickness benefits, you know, you're off work because you uh, have an illness of some sort. Uh, that those benefits, the, the use of those had risen uh, over the years from the 1970s. And it became very clear that the two largest groups of people that were represented in that rise of people on sickness benefits were people with mental health problems or people uh, with um, um, back pain and other Related musculoskeletal problems, and of course, there probably is an overlap between uh, those two groups. So, in a way, mental health problems became very much the focus of some of those uh, welfare reforms, along with, I think, uh, uh, single um, single mothers. Um, But what we've seen recently, I think, is firstly a big change to what was usually called sickness benefits. The incapacity benefit was was the uh, the late the, the, the uh, thing that they were called during the nineteen nineties and into the two thousands, and they became now um, employment a support allowance. So we've had a shift in the rules governing people who are going on to those traditionally sickness benefits. But in the last um, um, set of welfare reforms brought in last year, we, we they introduced a thing called uh, universal credit, which was an attempt to. Uh, simplify the benefit system by bringing together a whole group of of benefits that uh, people with and without mental health problems uh, were were, uh, maybe eligible for. The other big change, though, for people with mental health problems recently and people with disabilities in general, is the uh, removal of disability living allowance and its change to a new benefit called personal independence payments. And I think people um, who watch the news enough will be also aware we've had a benefits cap, we've had this so-called bedroom tax, we've had changes to the rules on um, uh, council tax benefits, uh, we've had changes to the benefit up rating, all of which were covered in the uh, last round of, of welfare reform and all of which of course will affect people with mental health problems and also I think as I often look at it, with disabilities in general.
0: There have been a, a lot of concerns around many of these changes. What are the implications for people with mental health problems?
1: Well, I, I, I personally think they're, they're, they're huge, actually. It's very difficult, actually, to sort of put um, a clear numbers on this. But actually, if you look at the numbers of people, say, with disabilities, Um, there's about 3.7 million people in this country with disabilities, and a substantial number of those, of course, will have disabilities related to their mental health problems, or of course they will have learning disabilities, and they're likely to lose something like £28 million collectively as a result of those reforms. It's a, I think it will have over the next few years a huge uh, uh, impact on people with mental health problems, particularly particularly if you include in that the cuts that are happening to um, local social services, and you know those sort of figures that you perhaps could look at are things like, you know, disabled people. I think at the moment, if you include all the local authority cuts are going to bear about 29%, 30% of those, those cuts. And again, of course, in that is a substantial number of people with uh, mental health problems and uh, learning disabilities. If, you know, you talk to people with mental health problems, and I face this daily in, in, in my job working with people uh, with, predominantly with psychoses, uh, what you will find is they're very, very anxious and very troubled by the fact that they're now being, um, having to go through the uh, work capability assessment process. That's the, that's the assessment to look at your eligibility for um, what used to be incapacity benefit is now called uh, ESA, or Employment Support Allowance. And increasingly, of course, what you're seeing is people who are getting incapacity benefits having now to migrate, to be moved on to uh, ESA. It's all part of a sort of slow progress that the Uh, DWP have been doing to change people and make sure that those uh, are all reassessed for uh, eligibility for ESA. Now I think we know for for many years now that the WCA, the Work Capability Assessment, is probably not fit for purpose and there's been countless complaints from a multitude of organisations, a multitude of uh, politicians and service users Uh, saying what exactly is wrong with that process and of course people are going through that process they're being sometimes found um, uh, uh, suitable for work when of course they're probably not at that moment and you know it causes them immense problems because they'll lose their benefits for a a particular period of time and of course I think that's the Sort of if you if you talk to people with mental health problems, that's been their great concern. And of course, the next great concern is going to be when they do exactly the same process with the move from DLA Disability Living Allowance to PIP a Personal Independence Payments. And it's very likely the way that process has been set up that we'll get a, a substantial number of people who are getting DLA, and I think DLA has been a terribly important matter for people with disabilities in general, but. Mental health problems, in particular, it's been very important for them to keep their, if you like, their heads above water. Often, in in a financial way, and of course they'll have to go through that process. And many of them, I think, will lose their DLA and won't get
0: PIP. How does the college interact with the government to improve social inclusion?
1: Well, I mean, we've taken this up on a number of, of strands, and I think. I've mentioned one of course being uh, the uh, benefits reform, and we have you know we, 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 we've, we've uh, interacted with government this this current government and the previous government over that on most of the issues there, uh, whether it be the, um, uh, the the WCA process, the descriptors that are involved in that looking at their suitability, whether it be uh, many of the other um, sort of components of those uh, changes. Uh, Particularly we we became worried about the the fact that people uh, could be compelled into work and we thought those types of approaches were not beneficial, especially since many of the government's approaches to finding people work, particularly for people with mental health problems, have not been terribly successful and continue not to be very successful. So that's, that's, that's one way we've done it and in doing so we've worked with the um, Disability Benefits Consortium, we've been part of that, which is a consortium of, of, of disability charities and we've worked particularly of course with Mind and Rethink, Centre for Mental Health um, and other uh, charities. And we've put in, uh, usually in our responses to consultations, we've done it in a joint way. And that's been very, very helpful, I think, for the College to work together with those, dis- those other mental health charities. Because it brings together, I think, lots of groups of expertise there, uh, some of which we have, some of which we don't have. And it's nice to combine those. But in some other ways, of course, we've we've also done a lot of work on uh, trying to raise the profile of employment. Now, you know, we can argue a lot about uh, the the value of employment for people, but I I think underneath there's very little doubt that employment can be a very good way of, uh, if you like, getting people out of social exclusion if you like and possibly getting people into poverty, out of poverty it's not a foolproof way of doing that that's for certain and of course it, there's a lot of barriers for people with mental health problems uh, to get into employment things like the supported employment schemes are not sufficiently implemented in this country to help people particularly with uh, severe and enduring mental health problems and those are many of the things that we've, we've tried to work on and latterly, we've done we've done some work trying to support the idea of personal health budgets uh, for people with mental health problems, which are well certainly the personal social care budgets are underused. Personal health budgets are just going to are just being sort of rolled in, and we, we'd like to see those done well because they do offer uh, a sort of p- possibility of much greater choice and control
0: for people with mental health problems. Thank you. Finally, I'd just like to ask you. What can people working in mental health do to improve the social inclusion of their service users?
1: Well, I mean, that's an important question in the sense that, of course, many of the things that one uh, intuitively looks at and correctly looks at to improve social inclusion are sort of broader uh, government and social policies. Now, of course, you know, we can... uh, as workers within our uh, services have some influence on those but um, if we look at our own services uh, and our own sort of day-to-day lives I think actually what we've said what the college has said before and we certainly put this in our book on social exclusion inclusion shall I say um, has been the fact that really if we were able to sort of uh, run our services in a more recovery orientated way. That would go some way to improving, if you like, the lot for people with mental health problems. Uh, I think you know re- we can talk about recovery for a lot, a lot longer than I've got to talk today. But if we look at that as being concerned with things like hope, uh, agency, and, and opportunity. Then you know, if we can build up people's sense of you know meaning and control, improve their hope, it does give them a, a lot better chance of of um, of making some sort of personal recovery. And the opportunity component of that is is very clearly important because it's that opportunity to, if you like, be part of your community, to sort of have a role in that community. Uh, that becomes uh, very important as a sort of me- as a sort of means of improving social uh, inclusion, and of course, one of the there are several key barriers to that. One, I think, being the sort of idea of uh, prejudice and discrimination, stigma. It, 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 you might call it in a sort of more broad sense, which I think in our daily lives we need to sort of always be aware of, and and actually. Um, you know advocate for in, in, uh, reductions of of stigma. but the other things I think are important are we need to change that relationship we have with people who use mental health services. I think it becomes very important to accept that you know professionals, clinicians, and others are experts in their own field and they've got something to offer, but of course, We mustn't forget that people with mental health problems have got their own lived experience and out of that comes their own sense of, uh, you know, uh, practical expertise. They know, you know, their mental health problems better than I do, as it were. And I think we need to improve, if you like, the way people are included and have a say within the development and the running of our services. We also, I think, need to include them as co-workers, you know, there's, there's growing evidence for things like for the employment of people uh, with mental health problems, uh, with the experience of those problems, as uh, peer support workers. And I think that notion of being peer support workers could enhance greatly um, the amount of, um, you know, new expertise, valuable expertise in our uh, mental health system. And I think lastly, you know, we have to look in our own backyard, as it were, within the NHS services to look at you know, what are we doing with, how, how are our own employment uh, um, um, systems uh, coping with employing people with mental health problems in many other roles in our health services? How are we using the lived experience of those people who we know have got mental health problems that work in the system? How are we using... Uh, that a lot better. And how are we creating the better um, employment environments for people to thrive as, uh, as uh, mental health workers? I think many of those things, I could go on, would, would sort of improve the social inclusion of people with mental
0: health problems. Thank you very much for talking to me and sharing your thoughts on these very important issues. Thank you.